We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Well, I got to talking here and I got lost track of the time, but uh, welcome to Fellowship Bible Church again this morning. It's wonderful to see you here today. I hope you'll have a good day worshiping together with everyone else that's here. Uh, God, keep us and uh, keep us close to Him. I was uh, reviewing in the past couple of weeks what we've accomplished as a church together in reading of God's Word and uh, was extraordinarily gratified. I uh, don't want that to be a prideful statement at all, but very gratified that uh, we have read almost the entire Scriptures together in our public services. We uh, began in 2008 with the Book of Romans and progressed mostly on Sunday evenings and then added on Sunday mornings to be reading a chapter, usually, at a time. And uh, we will finish Second Chronicles uh, at a near date. We have the book of Proverbs to finish and then the Song of Solomon. Those are the only books that we haven't uh, finished in our reading together. We've read all the others, and uh, I wonder if you can imagine what I'm going to do when we complete all those. We're going to start over. And uh, you're going to see that reading a chapter a week, or two chapters a week, rather, gets you through the Bible in, uh, let's see, what is that? Just over 14 years. So if we can do that, you can do much more than that. Yeah, it's not that, not that difficult. So I move the bookmark in my Bible from the end of Ezekiel to Proverbs chapter 21, please. Proverbs 21. And the reason why I'm reading in 21 is because we have read 1 through 20 already, combination of myself and Jackson Collins have read uh, those, uh, usually on Sunday evenings, but I thought since Jackson hasn't been able to do that and I needed a new place to go, Proverbs 21 will, uh, will suffice for us today. Let's uh, give our attention to the Proverbs, the short statements of general truth that are given in the scriptures here in 21. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Isn't that true? Everybody thinks they've got the corner on the truth. But the Lord weighs the hearts. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. A haughty look, a proud heart, and listen to this. What does your translation have there in the end of verse number 4? What does that say? The plowing of the wicked. Is that the lamp of the wicked? The plowing of the wicked. Um, you wonder about that. It's a kind of a mundane thing. 
The haughty look you can understand is sin, the proud heart you can understand is sin, but the plowing or the lamp, whatever that is, of the wicked, that's sin too? Because what they touch, you know what I'm saying? The uncleanness just permeates all that is in the life of a person who is rebelling against God. Verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. There's a real cautionary tale, isn't there? Verse 6, getting treasures by a lying tongue is the fleeting fantasy of those who seek death. The violence of the wicked will destroy them because they refuse to do justice. Verse 8, the way of a guilty man is perverse, but as for the pure, his work is right. Better to dwell in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. When the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise. But when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. The righteous God wisely considers the house of the wicked, overthrowing the wicked for their wickedness. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. A gift in secret pacifies anger, and a bribe behind the back strong wrath. It is a joy for the just to do justice, but destruction will come to the workers of iniquity. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. He who loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. The wicked shall be a ransom for the righteous and the unfaithful for the upright. Better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Verse 20, there is desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man squanders it. He who follows righteousness and mercy finds life, righteousness, and honor. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the trusted stronghold. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name, he acts with arrogant pride. The desire of the lazy man kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. He covets greedily all day long, but the righteous gives and does not spare. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with wicked intent? So even if he brings it with good intent, if he's wicked, then it's an abomination. Verse 28, a false witness shall perish, but the man who hears him will speak endlessly. A wicked man hardens his face, but as for the upright, he establishes his way. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, and that's necessary, isn't it? Preparations are necessary, but regardless of preparation, deliverance is from the Lord. Obviously, the tendency is that those that are well prepared, as uh, we read in uh, the plans of the diligent, verse 5, surely lead to plenty. Uh, you know, typically preparation does have good outcomes, but that doesn't guarantee deliverance from the Lord. So we'll 
stop the reading there with the chapter and uh, pick up uh, the next time. Inviting you to turn your Bibles to the first book again, the book of beginnings, Bereshit, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. We're in chapter 2 this morning. We addressed much of chapter 1 and early part of chapter 2 last time, ending in verse 3. Now we turn our attention to verse number 4. Testing out my Bible, whether it will lay flat in these opening pages of the scriptures. I don't know if you've had that trouble before, but uh, there are some Bibles that just don't want to stay open to either the first or the last pages of, of it, but uh, it's a good quality binding when you can find one that does, that does this. We believe here at Fellowship Bible Church and with all Christians that uh, are faithful to God's Word, we believe that these text of Scripture is inspired, that is, God breathes from the very first word, from the very first verse, and it means what it says from that very first verse. This is not a figure of speech, it's not a myth, it's not a legend, a story, a poem. It is an accounting, a narrative accounting of what God has done and uh, his acts of creation. We continue with the uh, creation account with the man and woman in an ideal, the ideal garden. Now, there's an an issue here that comes up because you read chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, and you say, okay, the creation's done. And then you start in chapter 2, verse 4, and you see this is the history of the heavens and the earth. Now, you, you would be immediately alerted to the fact that I mentioned already last week this word history or toledot in Hebrew, the generations, some of your translations may have. And it's a, divi- a word of division in the book. In other words, it divides the book into its 11 major sections. And so it's a significant waypoint, if you will, or stopping point for us to pause and say, okay, we're, doing, we're, we're shifting gears now. We're looking at something else. And people look at this, and because it talks about the creation of man again and the creation of woman and the garden and all of that, that they say, well, something's confused here. We already addressed the creation. The the first six days of the week are over, seventh day is over, God saw everything was good. Uh, At the end uh, of the creation week, he ceased from all his creative work, and so what's going on here? Um, Is this a more creative work of God, or is it another perspective on what was already written, or, or even, some suggest, is it contradictory to what was already written. Well, we, we know God is well able to avoid contradiction. It's not like he wrote chapter 1 through Moses and then said, oh, whoops, I made a mistake. I better go back and correct that. Um, and the text told us in chapter 2, verse 3, that God stopped his work, so we're not talking about further creative work here. It leaves one viable option, namely that in chapter 2, verse 4, through the rest of chapter 2, we have another look at some of the details of the creation week, especially as regards Adam and Eve. And this is altogether reasonable. We're looking at creation in chapter 1 from 25,000 feet. And God zooms in through the handiwork of Moses writing the Pentateuch here, and he looks specifically at, okay, so what about Adam and Eve? We're not looking at, you know... The, the, the earth as a, as a round ball from the perspective of the moon here. We're zooming right into 
Mesopotamia into the Garden of Eden, and we're seeing, whoa, there's a man that God creates, and a woman, and a garden, and all of these things. So give him some license here, okay, to kind of go back and zoom in on what needs to be discussed more. We start with the creation of man in verse number 4 through 7. Let me read these verses. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. Remember we said in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, they were in something of an unformed and unfilled state. This is not the chaos of the uh, pagan religions where, you know, there was the, the watery chaos and the gods were fighting or whatever and out popped, you know, the creation and that sort of thing. That's not that. It was an unformed and unfilled creation and the master craftsman carefully step by step in the right divine order builds and fills and interconnects and builds an ecological system, the, the whole earth, the, the cycle of life, the, the fruit seeds, the reproducing animals and all of that in just the right way for them to work together. The whole system has to, has to work together. I mean, just think about it for a minute. Everybody's concerned about the, the pollinating insects like the bees today. Well, I mean, what if you don't have those and you have plants that need to reproduce? I mean, you can pollinate by hand, I suppose, but over the whole earth? That's a lot of work. So everything was kind of interdependent on each other. God, the master craftsman, designed it perfectly. Well, anyway, uh, that was the unformed and unfilled state of things. And so we're backing up now and we're saying, okay, there wasn't rain, there wasn't anybody to till the ground, the, the herbs of the field hadn't grown yet. Verse 6, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. I'll mention about that mist in a moment. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being, a living nephesh. So we describe first here the circumstances of the earth sometime around day three of the creation week. I went back to day three because there were no plants yet. Day three is the creation of those. You had no hydrological cycle. Do you know what I mean by that? Evaporation, clouds, rain, you know, all that cycle. No man to plant or, ground, uh, or tend the garden and so forth. However, it is interesting that I call it a humid, humid kind of situation with the mist that served to water the land. I pictured it something like a verdant, um, well, like the Amazon rainforest, just teeming with life. Everything moist and lively and green and, and big, you know, everything there is big. The bugs are big. The animals are big. They don't have winter to contend with. They just keep growing, and it's, uh, you know, that sort of thing. The, the mist, uh, by some translations, is translated as springs or streams, and I think that's a very fine translation. Um, you know, it, it's not that you have to think of this as, you know, constant fog all the time over the Garden of Eden, but, you know, water bubbling up from from beneath and springs or streams. In any case, whether whichever way you take on that, I believe the early earth was very fertile and productive. 
There was no drought condition anywhere. Droughts are an, a consequence of the fall, an unfortunate consequence of the fall. They're part of the groaning of creation, are they not, brother? Yes. Well, we fast forward a couple of days in this description to day six. God forms man out of the dust of the ground. I said uh, to day six, yeah, he formed man out of the dust of the ground. He took clay and fashioned it into the body of a man. Now, it was a bit more complicated than that because this was not just a mere sculpture. Think of the great sculpture, sculptors of history and their works. You think of the, the works of um, Michelangelo and David, right? And uh, the other statues, I call them, or sculptures that he made. Or you think of them that do the work in the large, like Mount Rushmore and Crazy Horse and those that we saw earlier in this month. The amazing skill of the great sculptors of history. And then realize that those sculptures are only outward forms of something that God made both outwardly and inwardly with billions of complex functioning parts to put life into that thing. If a sculpture takes a sophisticated designer, and it does, how could anyone think that the actual human body of which the sculpture is only a fraction of a percentage as, uh, as complicated as that, how can you think that the, the, the human body was not designed by an even more sophisticated designer? Like a master craftsman, God did his work. The Apostle Paul said something similar to that statement. He said, I, as a wise master builder, have laid the foundation. And once you lay the foundation of Jesus Christ, you can't lay another foundation or a better foundation than that. And you've got to build accurately upon that. But God was the master craftsman and he did his work. So he took previously created stuff, dirt, earthly material, and made some of it into a human body. The human body is thus sourced organically from the earth. Okay? We are organic. We are organic. And the people are concerned a lot about organic today. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Genesis 3 says, we'll get there next time, Lord willing. You are connected to the earth. Yeah, you're connected to the earth. I think this has some implications for those who try to, I mean, this has a lot of implications, but one of them is if you try to sanitize your life away from dirt and out the outside and the sunshine and, and the the rigors of outdoor kind of, of living, uh, you know, and everything natural, we're part of nature. We're not distinct from it. In fact, I was just learning this from our, one of our medical doctor friends, that parents who keep their kids inside in an air-filtered environment when they're young don't allow those kids to be exposed to all the pollen and things out there in the world, and thus their immune system is not properly developed. Yeah, you have to be part of God's creation. You can't ex extricate yourself and live in one of those, you know, bubble things, you know, with no risk and no sniffles and no watery eyes and those sort. You have to go through those sorts of things uh, in this in this life anyway, the way that we exist now, because of the organic connection that we have to the world. But it's interesting to think. You could think, 
I think, a long while about that. What is my connection to the world like that way? But God did not only create a body. The verse says, verse 7, He formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now this, don't think of this just as air or oxygen or carbon dioxide and nitrogen and all those things that make up our atmosphere and their various percentages. This is the spiritual part of humans that God put in. We are not just material, but we have a spirit, a non-material part. And although it may be difficult for us to define that exactly, it's pictured here, it's given, it's, it's instructed here that God breathed into man. He, he put that spirit into him. That's the breath of God is his spirit, not just air. Both parts of man, the material and the immaterial, put together make a whole human being. Without the two parts, something is missing. In fact, when the two parts get separated, we call that death. That is what death is. Something is missing. It's a non-ideal, non-human. It's not entirely non-human, but it's a kind of a non-human state. The human state is meant to be the material plus the immaterial and the image of God, both. The image of God is both the body and the spirit because that's how Christ came, body and spirit. And so something is missing if those two are separated from one another. The combination of the two parts means that man became a living being or a living nephesh or a living what we call soul, S-O-U-L. So... And the way I explain it is you have the body plus the spirit equals the soul. The body, the material, plus the immaterial, and you have a living a living soul. When an airplane is having problems, the ground controller radios back to the pilot and says, how many souls are on board your aircraft? All told, how many souls? Living beings. Because they have to know, they have to be able to double check if something happens to that plane, that they're able to account for every single soul that was on that plane. Same with boats and other things. How many souls? In common usage, though, the words soul and spirit are basically used in an interchangeable way. We could say, well, their soul left and went to heaven, or their spirit left and went to heaven. I, I try to say spirit, because that's what I think is, it is, but I understand the common usage, and even the Bible uses soul and spirit sometimes differently, because when somebody's spirit goes, the soul, the living part of them is separated, it's, you know, it's, it's gone. So we can understand that. Um, and of course, it's tough to, to specify a little bit of technical difference between them. Of course, God's Word can do that, uh, Hebrews 4.12, what does it say? The, the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even or dividing, to the, you know, t- dividing the soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and is able to discern the what? Intents and thoughts of the heart. It's interesting that intents and thoughts of the heart really aren't two separate things, part of the same. Um, and it you know, could well be that the Bible is saying there in Hebrews 4.12 what I think it tells us right here. Here the Word of God clarifies the constitution of the human kind by saying that we have a body and a spirit and they make a living soul. So there is a distinction between the soul and the spirit. In the Bible, the Word of God is making that division, that distinction 
uh, right here. The body and the soul are separated. The person is no longer a living soul. They're a dead soul, if you could say it that way. Indeed, the the Scripture shows us the true thoughts and intentions of our hearts, Hebrews 4.12, and helps us get down to the difference between you know, what we desire in our flesh and, and what our spirit is led by, uh, our human spirit is led by the Spirit of God desires. You know that? The Word of God does that too. It tells you that you have, like Paul, desire to do that which is wrong and a desire to do that which is right, and the two are battling it out, and it shows you that distinction inside of you. This simple verse here, 2-7, reminds us that when we deal with people, ourselves and others, and, and their problems, we must keep in mind that people are not just bodies. And they're not just spirits. They are both united into one gloriously created complex being. What affects the body affects the spirit. What affects the spirit affects the body. This is why it's so essential like, for example, when somebody's dealing with an addiction of any kind, um, a sexual addiction, a drug addiction, a um, food addiction, whatever, you have to address it from the perspective of the body and the spirit. And if you try to do it only from the bodily side or the disease model only, it's not going to work ultimately. There are two issues going on because there are two components to humanity. So you've got to deal with both of those things. That's why it's distressing to me when you know, somebody wants to go to the, the medical community to help with a certain problem they're having, and I'm saying, yeah, but there's a whole spiritual side to this. You've got to see your pastor. You've got to get into the Word of God. You've got to repent of sin. Otherwise, you're not going to have ultimate success at solving that particular issue. Anyway, um, so uh, one thing that I thought of when I was writing this is, you know, don't get too down on yourself because you think of yourself as just a piece of dirt. You are that, <laughs> but you're more than that. Yeah, dirt, dirt don't hurt, <laughs> right? <laughs> your value comes from your creator, Combining the earthy and the spiritual into a glorious human being. And that's why I was marveling earlier and just seeing all of the variation. I mean, I was looking at the, the, the lightest hair has got to be your daughter, brother. And the darkest hair, some of these ones in the front and the back. And, and then any hair at all. Yeah, that's a blessing too, right? <laughs> well, sorry, Thurman. You'll take, you'll take any, huh? <laughs> yes. So what a glorious thing God has done in creating uh, the human race in all of its glorious variety. Well, not only did he create man, but then he put, a, put him in a place to live and to, to work. And uh, I only wish that I could see the, you know, just give me an instant replay of what that looked like. We get a little bit of that instant replay. If you look in the book of Revelation, you'll see a little bit of it in 21 and 22 again. But, uh, you know, look at verse 8. The Lord, planted, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. That's a lot of work to plant a garden, isn't it? Especially a big garden. And then to manage the garden. God planted a garden in Eden. 
sometimes that word, by the way, is used in, uh, or derivative word is used in languages, Edenu, to refer to an oasis in that language. Eden, it says, is um, eastward. Well, eastward from what? Well, from the place Moses was writing, it was eastward from the nation of Israel, uh, from the, his present location. The garden was an oasis. It was, just imagine these words, an oasis. Uh, not on the Ohio Turnpike, okay? That's an oasis, but that's a totally different kind of oasis, all right? Um, a, a paradise, a perfect place for humans and God to exist, to coexist, to fellowship, for man to tend the garden and for man to have as his headquarters for his project to have dominion over the whole earth. Have you ever thought of that before? God told him, you're in charge. He's got a place now to call his headquarters. The garden had all kinds of trees, fruit trees, verse 9. Uh, that were pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their leaves and their fruits were interesting to the palate and perhaps also for strength and sustenance. Remember in in chapter 129, God gave them certain things for food. That's why we eat, because that's how we were created, to eat. The food was not simply for enjoyment, but for sustenance. The finite creature evidently needs some source of ongoing strength, and God created food for that purpose. It's needed on a regular basis. God provides it on a regular basis and thus reminds us of what? Our dependence on Him. Why do we thank God for our food at the meals? Because God didn't have to give us that food. He could have decided their life is over. I'm going to let them perish, starve. Some he has done that. Some he has done that. Some in my wife's own family, the prior generation, with uh, her dad in the war in Greece. Family members starved to death. That happened often, too, in uh, Russia and many other places. Uh, China, I think, too, in the history of China. Great starvations. We thank God because every time he provides food, we are reminded of our dependence upon him. We are dependent upon him. We thank him for what he provides. Two trees are called out for special comment, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. We'll start with the tree of life. It's appropriately located, where does it say? Uh, In the midst of the garden. I think that means in the center and centrally located. This mentioned again in chapter 3, when God has to prevent Adam and Eve from taking of that tree and thus remaining forever in their sinful state. And then in Revelation chapter 2 and 22, so a long absence, the tree makes its reappearance in the heavenly realm. In those verses, both the fruit and the leaves of the tree are, are of note, whether God imparted special chemical qualities to that tree, or whether he'd simply designated it as a special tree, the eating of which connects a person to God's sustaining power, that the, those details aren't spelled out. I, I strongly lean toward the non-mystical interpretation or the non, I could say, magical 
interpretation. It was evidently eaten just like the other tree's fruit was eaten. There's no mention of a kind of luminous glow around this tree or anything like that. Uh, God simply set it apart so that if you eat of that tree, and I believe continue to eat of it, you will live forever. The way I'm reading this and the way I see in Revelation 22, that tree will be available for anyone to partake of on an ongoing basis. Because there's never going to be a time in which we can say, I am now independent of God and I don't need his sustenance. We always need that sustenance. And always for all eternity, we will recognize and require that sustenance. The power to accomplish that ultimately comes from God. Like abiding in the vine, John chapter 15. Unless a man abides in me and I in him, he can bear no fruit. You have to abide in the vine to continue believing in Christ, continually receiving the life-giving flow from God. And once you're cut off from that, Adam and Eve, were slowly entering the process of death and eventually ran out of the supply of strength which God had initially endowed them, with which God had initially endowed them. So that's the tree of life. Um, In the eating of it, in the partaking of it, God provided that sustenance. But then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree is like the first in that it was designated by God to have a special result if it was eaten. Now, I don't believe the result was from the fruit itself. Like we might picture, especially when we're young, that, you know, if you took that, always the apple. Why did the apple get the bad rap? But you take that apple and it's got poison in it. And you think, well, if you eat that, then you die. Well, it wasn't that because God when he created that, said everything was what? Very good. It was a good tree. It was part of his good creation. So it's not in the fruit itself, but it's from the act of disobedience when the designated fruit was eaten and not supposed to be eaten. Eating of the tree because of the disobedience of that act would change Adam and Eve's relationship with good and evil and would bring on God's judgment against sin. Now then, the question arises, well, what does that mean about good and evil? I mean, they didn't know anything about good and evil? I mean, they were that clueless? No, because God made them like he has made us with a conscience. They knew that it was wrong to eat of that tree. They knew it was wrong to disobey God, so they knew that much. But they would come into a new relationship with good and evil. They had a functional conscience, they understood obedience to God's commands, but they were perhaps tempted to become judges of good and evil, arbiters of good and evil, enjoying a kind of autonomy with it and thus becoming more like God. Isn't that what Satan said? In the day you eat of it, you'll become like God. It's great, he says. What they did not realize under the sway of the tempter, which we'll come to in chapter 3, was that they would not achieve the the sought-after positive goal. Instead, they would be plunged into deep experiential knowledge of evil because of their new condition, which we call total depravity. They would experience good in a limited sense, like you and I do today, but they would know evil in a way that they could not know it in their initially innocent state. Further, they would experience the curse of God because of their disobedience. 
They thought they would know good and evil in a good way. But instead, they knew good and evil in a bad way. Cautionary note, disobedience cannot result in anything good. You with me? No disobedience is going to be a good thing. Now, God may work it out for good after you've sinned, but that's not your doing. That's God mercifully uh, releasing you from some of the consequences of your sin and working the situation out to come to a better intended end. But no disobedience results in good, and so they should have They should have stopped to think, wait a minute, we're going to disobey God and think a good outcome is going to come from it? That's dumb. The remainder of verses 10 to 14 describe a very interesting geography. I'll just read it here for us. Now, a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from it, see, there's the watering, so not just the mist, but the watering. And from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon, it's the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. Now, this is the Tigris River. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. So two of these rivers are lost to us. Two we know about, at least in modern or modified form. Um, so that's verses uh, 10 through 14. Very interesting. Um, gold, bdellium, onyx, the layout of the rivers, uh, the relationships to early versions of Cush and Assyria and the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It seems that Eden was located, well, we know it was east of Israel, but it was located somewhere in the Fertile Crescent where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers are yet today in an area we know as Mesopotamia, You've learned that word probably in middle school or elementary school, right? That word comes from two words, mezzo meaning middle or between, and potamos, river. It's the land between the rivers. So common geographic name of an ancient place is thus brought to us by the Bible. Now God settled a man in the garden and gave him stewardship over the garden. He was to care for it, which I imagine included pruning and harvesting and all kinds of other things uh, in the garden. I don't believe that he had to take the pollinating job of the bees, nor was there much weeding or watering that had to happen. What a glorious garden that is. You can wander through and prune a few things and pick a few fruits and eat whenever you want. And uh, what What an amazing thing. So he uh, could eat of any tree except the one of knowledge of good and evil. That was a simple instruction to test whether Adam would trust his maker or trust in himself. He was obviously given a measure of freedom to choose whether to obey that command or not. The penalty of eating was death, certain death. Ultimately, that was spiritual death and physical death. And we don't know how much Adam understood the distinction between physical and spiritual uh, death. Um, but it's indeed what happened. Uh, Instantly, when they partake of this in chapter 3, they enter into the state of spiritual separation from God, which is spiritual death. Physical death took many years to come about, 
centuries later in their case. And so that raises the question, well, what does it mean? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, it's connected to spiritual death, and it's also saying it's a certainty, friends. You will certainly go. Dying, you will die, the Hebrew text says. It's like an emphatic statement. You're a goner if you do that. Now, the last section, I have to hasten along here to try to finish this this morning, and uh, wouldn't be complete unless we talked about the creation of the woman. Uh, Adam found out that he lacked a comparable partner. This fact was well known to God, of course, but it became observationally clear to Adam when he named all the animals. Now, this is in verses 18 through the end of the chapter. God said, it's not good that man should be alone. And that's a statement that certainly comes down to us today, true, in many, many cases, in most cases. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. Again, this is a review of what he did. And every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. I think we read over that and we kind of maybe get it confused or backwards or don't really recognize what's going on there. Adam didn't happen to just have this intuition of um, names that God already had planned for these animals, like somehow Adam was omniscient in this area. No, God created Adam with the ability to categorize, recognize. I mean, he was the ultimate scientist. He was a biologist here. He saw all of these animals, and he was able to name them appropriate names for their kinds or species, roughly speaking. And that was the name that stuck with them for the rest of the human race. Now, what he's doing there is he's exercising his dominion, his authority. God says, it's in your hands, Adam. Even the naming of these animals, you do it. You know, if you had, have had the privilege of having children, God gives you the privilege and the authority to name those children because you're the head of that house. You know, fathers, mothers together as in charge of the home. You give the names. Well, here Adam gave the names. He assigned the names. He could classify and appropriately name hundreds of kinds of animals. That's amazing. That is amazing, the intellect that he possessed to be able to do that. It's just hard for us sometimes just to remember the name of certain animals, you know? Yeah, or people, poor people. We don't even remember their names. God remembers every name. Yeah, so back to the search for a partner, Adam easily notes that, hey, all these animals are, you know, Mr. and Mrs. coming along all the time, and we're, we're giving them names. Uh, they're in pairs. He knew, he understood the purpose of reproduction, but the lone human had no comparable or second partner yet. So God designed that Adam would recognize this omission in creation and then experience the supply of God. And he put Adam to sleep and did some quick surgery and used part of Adam as the basis to create a woman. So it can be said that a woman comes from man, but now all men come through women. 1 Corinthians eleven twelve says that. Uh, a man and a woman today in a very good marriage are pictures of this first couple interconnected to one another and to all the rest of humanity. Because woman came out of man, they're ontologically equal, although they have different assignments given by them 
uh, to them by God. I put a comment here about this rib thing. I'm going to let you read that. I won't go over that. Adam was obviously very pleased when he awoke to see the result of God's handiwork and expressed that she should be called woman to indicate that she is inseparably connected to him, to man, and although she was a fully formed and separate person created in the image of God. He said in verse 23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is what makes conflict in a marriage relationship between a husband and wife so troubling, so difficult, because they are together, one. It says in verse 24, a man, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Very interesting. Uh, they are to leave and to be married. This is like the first... Um, well, this, is, this was maybe at their wedding. I don't know. God officiated? I mean, this is the quickest first meeting, courtship, engagement, and marriage in human history. Just that quick. They marked, this marked the marriage of Adam to Eve, although they had no parents to leave, but everyone after them would have parents to leave and create a new family. Um, and this directive also explains that man and woman would become one flesh in a marriage relationship. And this is indeed a physical in a marital union, but also designed to be oneness and purpose, spiritual direction, and really in all aspects of life. So when there's that conflict, I go back to that and say, man, she's bone of my bones. He is part of me. Uh, she is part of me. Why, why do we act so evil sometimes? in our marriage. Caring for your wife is caring for yourself. Caring for your husband is caring for yourself. And so we must work to cultivate that kind of union. We go over this in our marital and premarital counseling. And then finally, I'll just deal with this last verse, 25. It says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. This is a little bit seemingly extraneous, although certainly factual that they didn't come out with clothes on out of the creative work of God. They were entirely comfortable with that unclothed state. They were not ashamed like modern people would be in that state. Why not? Because there was no sin in the world yet. There was no feeling of exposure, no feeling of insecurity, no temptation when seeing the opposite sex unclothed, no fear of judgment in the gaze of others, no inappropriateness of the unclothed state, no lack of dignity, no distraction, no shame, no fear of what happens to a naked person in society today. I mean, what happens? That They're exploited, used, abused. When sin entered the world, however, there instantly became a sense of all of these bad feelings that I just touched on and an innate knowledge that we're not supposed to be exposed that way except in the limited context of marital intimacy and special situations of a medical nature, you know, childbirth and, and that sort of thing. Clothing covers the shame of sin and reduces temptation. As such, clothing, though not negative itself, is to me at least a daily reminder of the sinful state of humanity. In addition to that, who cannot but help to avoid the remembrance 
who can, how can I say it? I said it a little bit odd there. Who can avoid the remembrance of the clothing of the robe of righteousness that we are given to remind us that our sin and our shame were taken away in Christ Jesus? Now, we could explore this text in a whole bunch of directions. I mean, I was just marveling as I went through the text and I kept typing my notes and everything. It just gets longer and longer and I have to quit. There's so many things and and little rabbit trails that we could go down that would be profitable in and of themselves. Perhaps you could take some time to think on one or two of such things this week. Consider, for example, you are a steward in your corner of God's garden just like Adam was. What are you doing about that stewardship? Think of your marriage situation and how your oneness could be worked out in a better fashion. Think of the need to obey God and whatever instructions He's given you, even if it seems like, well, it'd be nice to eat of that tree. No, the result's not going to be good, you know, unless you experience more ill consequences of disobedience. Consider that also if you trust in God, Someday you'll be able to partake of the tree of life. Won't that be a tasty treat? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for uh, this teaching in Genesis 2. And although we are trying to deal with this in the bigger picture, larger chunks at a time, I trust it's still profitable for our souls that we think about these matters, touch them at a high level. Lord, we know where we've come from. We know where the world is heading because the Bible tells us, and we thank you for giving us that word. You did not have to do that, and so we extend gratitude to you for it. Help us as we think about oneness, our stewardship, obedience to you, the tree of life, the the wondrous creation of the world that you've made. What a blessing all of it is. We trust that you will help us take this seriously and not to just... set it aside or treat it as some fancy religious story. It is truth. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.